2: The more casualties you have, the harder it is to say that everything is, you know, everything is fine and everything's going to plan. The longer this drags on, the harder it is to to say that that's the case. And you know, we've had so many signals, both from the battlefield and from politicians, that you know the initial intention was for this to be a three-day war and um, or a four-day, you know, a short, uh, short operation. And obviously, that, that hasn't happened. So there is clearly messaging to the domestic audience the pressure on which is is only going to is only going to increase as as this continues and the domestic audience is, is ultimately the one that matters most to to the leadership and to to the Kremlin
0: I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare podcast March 28th 2022 Polina Ivanova is Moscow correspondent for the Financial Times. She has spent the better part of the last decade reporting from Russia for the Financial Times, for Reuters, and elsewhere. She joined me in the virtual jungle studio to talk through the Russian military press conference that took place on Friday, in which the Ministry of Defense seemed to walk back Russia's war aims in the Ukraine conflict. We talked about what the Ministry of Defense said, how different or similar it is from previous Russian statements about what this war is about, whether it was intended for international or domestic consumption, or maybe both, and whether it provides a plausible basis for resolution of the conflict. It's the Lawfare podcast March 28th Polina Ivanova on Russia's new line. So get us started with the Russian military press conference on Friday about which you did a very interesting summary tweet thread. Give us a summary of of what happened and what the Russian military is saying.
2: Sure. So on Friday three um, top representatives of the defence ministry held a briefing in Moscow. They spoke to a room of journalists with an enormous uh, screen behind them, just to set the scene for you, a sort of wall-sized screen with uh, a slideshow going of images of the war and also of various maps representing what they were saying. And uh, basically the, the press conference marked one month since the start of Russia's invasion, um, on February 24th. And, um, it was doing what, what Russians call a podetorze. So pulling together all, all the, what they can summarize has happened so far, and also pitching a kind of new phase of the war as they see it. I mean, to, to describe what, what they were saying specifically, just, you know, from their, based on their words and what, how they were presenting the war and how they were presenting its, um, outcomes so far and what they see as, as, next steps uh, for them so that was the how it was built and what they were what they were effectively saying was um they started by kind of explaining more um you know what russia set out to do in in ukraine so giving us a new narrative i would say about what the initial aims were of this of this invasion so they presented documents and they've they've talked about this before but claiming that ukraine was planning to attack uh donbass in so eastern ukraine in March and saying that this was a preemptive war by Russia. This is very much denied by Kiev and its allies. And then they effectively stressed that the aim of the, of the war had always been to liberate, as they would put it, the eastern Ukrainian region. <laughs> we can argue and we can discuss whether or not that was uh, what Russia actually set out to do initially and how it was presenting its aims and goals. A month ago, but at this point in time that's how they were showing it. So Russia's aim is is now to focus on East Ukraine. Everything else attacks across the country, the strikes that have been happening across the country, the blockades of lots of different cities of regional capitals, you know and and Kiev itself. They describe this as secondary as a sort of almost a ploy to distract Ukrainian troops to prevent them from resupplying the front in the east. And that the focus of this next phase of the war would be on on securing control over the eastern region.
0: So there has been, I think, two big schools of thought about how to interpret this press conference. One of them, loosely speaking, is this is a bit of a climb down. You know, they've gone from wanting to denazify and demilitarize uh, the entire Ukrainian state, which is both of which are understood to be code words for kind of regime change in Kiev. And that this is a fallback to a kind of 2014 vision of what conflict with Ukraine looks like, wherein they don't aspire to topple the Zelensky government or install a uh, Yanukovych-like figure rather they merely want border adjustments in the donbass and and recognition of the independence of luhansk and, and donetsk the other way to see it uh which some commentators have been focused on is that this is kind of a big distraction and that they're you know trying to appear to be doing that uh, to buy themselves time to resupply and then actually stick with plan A. I'm curious, uh, how you read it as a, you know, as somebody who's sort of spent a lot of time talking to Russian Ministry of Defense people over the years.
2: I think the reason that there is a debate is, I mean, the, the debate is pretty justified. And the reason it exists is because different aims have been set out over the course of this war and before it, and the narrative has given us uh, that we've been given by um, various Russian officials and Putin himself has been, of the casus belli has been, you know, very mixed. So we've had, as you say, demilitarization of Ukraine in neutral Ukraine, denazification of Ukraine in very much in in quote marks there. Um, Denuclearization came up for a while as a point of discussion in lots of Sort of in russian state media messaging appearing about you know a source in government saying that you know they were preparing a dirty bomb and this sort of thing so there, there was denuclearization was discussed for a while and then there was biological weapons and bio labs and you know needing to kind of get rid of that threat that that ukraine posed and then there's you know this discussion of the liberation so-called liberation of of east ukraine so The fact that there has been debate, um, isn't, isn't surprising because the, the aims have been, you know, we've been given lots of different aims. And I think it's likely that that is done in order to, you know, be able to pick one later. Potentially it makes it rather easier to then, uh, select which one you were initially targeting and say that actually all along, for example, we were going for, for the liberation of Donbass. So if you look back at what Putin was saying from the beginning, on the one hand, in speeches, he would say things like, you know, we do not plan to occupy Ukrainian territories at all. This is not Russia's aim. You know, this is uh, the day that the war began. At the same time, he would talk about, um, you know, it'd call on Ukrainians and on Ukrainian troops to overthrow the junta in power and, you know, call for a coup and overthrow overthrow the regime ruling on Ukrainian territory and this sort of thing, which would suggest, you know, totally different motives. So all of these contradictory things, you know, create this... um this this lack of clarity which means that we can then uh sit here and sort of listen to this, to this speech by by the generals on friday and and not be entirely sure uh which which way to read it i mean i think the argument that russia you know a lot of very good analysts have been talking for a while about how russia needed to resupply to pause to slow down the process of the, of its attack based on you know the needs of its military at this point and couldn't keep up at this point its attack and um and the same strength so so it's also very possible to read this as a attempt to stall or to to take time to to pause um and it would fit into the timelines that analysts have been talking about for weeks saying that at this point around about now Russia will need to to put things on pause for a while in order to keep its invasion going so uh so it it, it could be it could be a ploy it could be a genuine strategy it could be a rollback And it could be all of those things in one in a continuation of this approach of of giving lots of different messages and then you know picking which one fits later on
0: so i'm interested you refer to the war aims as stated a month ago uh, when you were talking to people a month ago how consistent is the current line with what you were hearing then or is this really a change either because this is a feint of some sort to buy time or because that was, a, as they're now saying, a feint of some sort to uh, distract Ukrainian military resources from the east?
2: Well, I think if you listen to what, what Putin was saying um, at, the, at, the, at the time and the justifications that he gave for war initially, I think they're really, uh, they make it very clear and they fit into quite a specific worldview and plan and ultimately, you know, leaving to one side what he said about NATO and what they had been, what Russian officials have been saying about, um, needing to kind of restore Russian power on the European continent and a balance that they believe was lost in, in after, in during the 1990s, fitting into that narrative is this idea that, um, Kiev was like under the thumb, as they would put it, of, of foreign leaders and that it was a dangerous anti-Russia. And Putin called it a question of life or death for Russia as to whether you know, you, Ukraine um, stays under its current leadership and with its current Western alliances. And he said that this was a red line that, that had already been crossed. And that's why Russia needs to take action. And that's why Russia needs to, to, to launch an attack. And, and this was the justification that he gave on, on, on February 24th. And I think, you know, if you measure him by that standard and measure the, the progress of this war against, against that aim, the, the, then what they were saying can be seen as a rollback, what the generals were saying can be seen as a rollback um, from what uh, was the stated aim by the president on February 24th, which is, okay, not to occupy Ukrainian territories if you um, take him at his word, but if you also take him at his word, then then it's a question of life or death for Russia if Kiev remains hostile to, to Russia and allied to the West and quote-unquote under the control of, of foreign leaders. So if if you take them at their word then it's a rollback from that position and from those aims i listened to those to that friday press conference
0: and it did sound to me like it was an effort to uh first of all number 1 deny the degree of failure mm-hmm. but number 2 to hint a little bit at what the likely preferred Russian basis for a ceasefire or a settlement would look like. Mm-hmm. That is, we seize a little bit more territory on in the East and we're prepared to withdraw from, from the rest, although there's sort of no reference to the Southern Corridor question if Ukraine is willing to accept the territorial losses and we give up on the regime change element. On the other hand, I am sensitive to the sort of Ukrainian suspicion that this mm. is a ploy. And by the way, you know, the, the irritation that the West sees or analysts in the West see a sort of moderation in the idea of, okay, we seize a lot of your territory instead of uh, decapitating the regime entirely. Mm. Um to what extent do you think this is a an intentional set of signals for international consumption rather than a domestic uh statement hey to whatever extent you're hearing about failures and casualty numbers uh that's wrong you know this is all going according to plan
2: well the phrase this is all going according to plan was um, I think I counted it coming up three times in in the briefing. so I think I think that is um an a sort of message that they, they they definitely want to convey to their audience. and I think they are very conscious of domestic pressures. I think those pressures are growing um as time goes on, people will feel you know ordinary Russians will feel the impact of sanctions more and more. I think it's relatively. That impact is, is relatively limited um, so far, but what it's set to grow, there's a sort of time lag on that. You know, we had images on television, um, on Russian state TV, I think, yesterday on the weekend of generals visiting injured uh, Russian troops in hospital and, you know, awarding them medals. And um, I think all of those things together show that, you know, there is um, a buildup of domestic Pressure. I mean, it gets harder, and the more casualties you have, the harder it is to say that everything is, you know, everything is fine and everything's going to plan. The longer this drags on, the harder it is to to say that that's the case. And you know, we've had so many signals, both from the battlefield and from politicians, that you know the initial intention was for this to be a three day war and um, or a four day, you know, a short uh, short operation. And obviously, that, that hasn't happened. So there is clearly messaging to the domestic audience, the pressure on which is is only going to is only going to increase as as this continues, and the domestic audience is is ultimately the one that matters most to to the leadership and to, to the Kremlin. So I, I guess my question
0: then is, what are you looking for over? You know, you you've answered a lot of my questions by by framing the parameters of reasonable debate over them. Uh, What are you looking for over the next few days and weeks by way of the clarification Mm. of where reality is within that spectrum? What are what are the signs we should be expecting to see if, in fact, there has been a shift toward An eastern Ukraine focus. What are the signs we should be looking for? If in fact, this is a, you know, negotiating position. Uh, on the other hand, what are the signs we should be looking for? If this is actually a, you know, designed to create a strategic pause or principally meant for domestic consumption and it has no implications for de-escalation of the current conflict.
2: Yeah, I mean, I just—I guess I just hesitate, as as many people do, to 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 definitely interpret what is going to happen um, based on on Russian statements. I think that's the easiest way to go wrong, because they ob- they often shift in time, and and yeah, you don't know exactly what to expect. But I think wait before you go on, I just want
0: to—I just want to pause you on that point. So, so you think it's really possible that this is a, an all of the above situation? It creates a strategic pause. It allows a focus on consolidating eastern Ukraine. It communicates something for domestic consumption, and it communicates a potential uh, international negotiating position.
2: Yes, absolutely. And uh, cherry picking, cherry picking um, after the fact is, is it's, I mean, it's quite useful. It's quite a useful tool to then get, you give yourself, you leave options uh, absolutely open. I mean, they did signal a specific change in direction, right? They did signal um, that we're going to focus on the East. And they also spoke about how they were going to do that, what this next stage of the war might look like. I mean, that is we can we can probably assume that, that uh, at least some to some extent that will be then realized. They spoke. Uh, they spoke about this refocus on, on the east and then they talked about how the front in the east, because it's been a front line for so long, has been really heavily fortified. You know, they talked about cement structures in the ground and this sort of thing and then said that in those circumstances, you know, heavy bombardment is used. So they didn't even, you know, if you listen to the Russian, they didn't even say that we're going to now heavily bombard East Ukraine if you're talking about what signals we'll be looking for, right, in terms of how, whether it's uh, refocusing on the Eastern front or not, but they did so use a sort of passive voice to say that this is kind of the done thing, but you can read into it saying that, well, they're leaving themselves definitely a road, you know, they're signaling that that's the road that they could be going down, which is, you know, much more aerial bombardment in the East. So if we're, if we're talking about signals, that's uh, that's one thing that we can look out for is an intensification of of the conflict in the East based on what they were saying specifically with airstrikes, with, an intention to limit uh, ground troop casualties from based on what they were saying but yeah it could be all of the above exactly
1: hey i'm Ryan Reynolds at Mint Mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little so naturally when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you
0: is to go to joindeleteme slash lawfare twenty and enter code lawfare twenty at checkout that's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare twenty code lawfare twenty so shifting gears a bit you have been a correspondent in Russia uh, both for first for Reuters as i recall and and then uh, more recently for the for the Financial Times for quite a number of years um better part of a decade i'm interested in just how your life has changed as this conflict has developed and and what it has been like being a you know russo-british reporter for international news organizations in in moscow and in russia more generally
2: I mean, not straightforward. Um, That's uh, that's for sure. Um, We've seen over the course of the past year and a half, I think, working out of Moscow, we've seen an intensification of this of a a crackdown on um, free speech. On I think it all basically. Often, when we think about it, we think back to a timeline of of uh, Navalny's return to Russia. Actually sort of flew with uh, Navalny from Berlin to Russia. And from that moment of landing when he was detained, everything sort of snowballed really quickly. The process that we had seen happening in Russia for a while in terms of political freedoms and um, you know crackdowns on protesters and that kind of thing all just sped up hugely. And then in the past uh, few weeks in this kind of wartime era, it has skyrocketed. I mean, it, this has been the real shift and seeing that sort of happen, it's it's sort of the, the trajectory that we had been going down. Someone was saying that, you know, we'd um, put it sort of, uh, you're kind of rolling and then suddenly you're speeding out of uh, into outer space on, on this sort of thing. So that has been a big change. I think for me personally, it's it, the, one of the great difficulties of reporting all of this is your um, positioning with respect to it. So in Russia, you're a foreign reporter. In Ukraine, you're a reporter with Russian heritage in uh, so you're you're, you have to navigate all of these things which is also quite difficult and how my life has changed is yeah watching this um, sort of rapid escalation in in uh, the crackdown that we've sort of gradually been seeing build up and build up and build up over the past year and a half it has meant that a lot of uh, friends have left a lot of media that I have relied on colleagues um, people that worked in independent media have been forced to shut down operations, leave, or attempt to restart um, their work from abroad. There's also, of course, been the huge impact on colleagues and journalists who um, I've known for years from working in Ukraine. So, who've also, you know, uh, much more than anyone else, have had their lives um, upturned completely, or have continued, you know, have, have, have continued working very bravely in the circumstances. So. A, a large community of people that I um, spoke with in Russia or um, of friends and colleagues have just sort of scattered around Tbilisi, uh, Yerevan, Istanbul, the Baltics. Many are talking all the time about, you know, conversations have started focusing more on, you know, how do I use money because my cards have stopped working, my bank accounts have stopped working, you know, um, just logistical things, how trying to help people um, We'll sort out travel arrangements, uh find visas, ways to stay in because they feel at risk back in Russia. So it's um yeah, it's been it's been a sort of a huge shift in 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 the past few weeks for Russians as well. But of course nothing like in Ukraine. And
0: what about for your your Twitter bio describes you as a Londoner and a post-Soviet baby? <laughs> yeah, and God. uh these these are things that uh used to be very natural to be, you know, when when you and I met when you were a student uh, at Oxford and the idea of being a Russian-British student at Oxford was the most natural thing in the world. Now there's a lot of hostility directed to, you know, Russians with real estate in London. Um There's a kind of suspicion of that identity. And I'm wondering... I'm wondering to what extent that's a that that's a factor in you know in in your life as well.
2: It is. It's always been something that Russians talk about in in London for a long time. Um, but I wouldn't want to emphasize it too much because I think it, you know, everything that I have experienced has been in recent weeks has been has been focused on understanding and and seeing that that there is a variety of opinions in Russia and that the context there it's it's a very you know, there hasn't been this assumption that all Russians are, are supportive of, you know, all Russians support this war and and, and there's kind of a knee-jerk hostility um, immediately towards Russians abroad. I I do think there is more to navigate. I think I also would not complain about that because I think it is almost, you know, this has happened. I am a Russian passport holder. We're all to some degree, if we have to carry the, you know, if we have to I- explain our positioning uh, with with respect to this war, uh, I think, fine, you know, that's not much to ask of people. And yes, it, it definitely has. You know, I basically, um, I'm talking to a hairdresser, for example. He asked me where I'm from the other day. I say Moscow. And he says, "Oh, that's controversial." I'm like, "Yes, it very much is." But let's have this conversation. Let's talk about it. Absolutely, because you know that that's well quite quite right that we should. Yeah, I think that I think a lot of uh, Russians are quite concerned about this. But what I try and do all the time is just to say it's just to explain that there's been, you know, that I haven't had that experience um, not in recent weeks so instead of had good conversations about it. So, you know, one possibility is that
0: actually you end up with a sort of all of the above situation um, that is. You create a strategic pause. Uh, maybe there is more fighting, but it ends up stalemated in other parts of the country. And you end up with a East only arguable win. And I guess, uh, that you then have to claim as victory to the Russian people. Is that plausible? I mean, if, if given the way the setup has gone, the magnitude of the losses, if putin has to actually fall back for internet leave aside the international question whether he could get a deal on that basis something of which i'm rather skeptical if he could could he sell that as a win
2: i i think often we worry that you know we're not giving um the you know we're not giving russia's leadership enough off ramp you know a, a way off so that they can sell it as a victory and maybe you know that would actually you know precipitate a swifter ending to this Conflict. I actually think that, um, you know, to its core base, the Kremlin is able to sell quite a lot. You know, it's able to sell almost anything if it, if it has so far been able to, um, to some degree, uh, at least um, convince population of the, of the need for this war. So I think it is I think it is possible. On the other hand, you know, I, I think... The support for uh, the war so far has been, you know, it, polls are not very um, uh, verifiable, polls are not very trustworthy at this point in time for various reasons. Um, they're a bit difficult to to really trust in Russia at the moment, but there is a sense to which there is a majority still of uh, support f- for the war. Uh, but that support is pretty shallow from everything that I get a sense of. You know, it's based in part of just sort of re- of what is, is uh being said on television when it's probed, when that support is probed, and there's a you know question of like why you know but why is this war happening? Can we really get into into some depth with it? It, it feels like there's a degree to which it's quite shallow. So I think the ability to just present this as you know we've we we stop here, we've prevented Ukraine from striking us first, which was the you know at the beginning of this of this press conference. I think it reads pretty thin, but it it would allow us to stop at where we are now and not. Dig into a very, very long, um, drawn out war, aiming to secure some other sort of much bigger victory, which would take, you know, months and 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 cause much, much more destruction. So, so yeah, uh, I think it's it's sellable. And what about sellable to the military
0: elites who uh, and the security services uh, who have lost a lot of people and. Who have been humiliated? I mean, it's one thing to to sell it to nationalistic people on the street in Novosibirsk. It's another thing to to sell it to non commissioned officers and and flag officers. And there have been five or six or seven flag officers killed who've lost people and who form an important part of your power base.
2: Yeah, it's it's it, a very good question. And a a difficult one to a difficult one to answer. Everything that we've seen right shows. um, I mean, uh, this this would be this would be very much questioned uh, on the Russian side. But from looking at um, videos from the front line or videos that are shared by the Ukrainian side, obviously we see a lot of low morale both in troops, and there have been some some heavy losses, and as you say, losses on on um, some very senior levels in the army. So whether or not that swings opinion towards continuing a war to secure a greater a greater goal or swinging it towards, you know, we, we should stop now before this gets worse. That's uh, hard to say. If you, From their perspective um, and from the perspective of everything that they were saying on Friday, one of these core aims of the military have been, in their view, achieved in that they listed the destruction of targets uh, of Ukrainian targets around across the country. So 16 air bases knocked out the strikes that have taken place on defense industry, you know, industrial plants that have re- that would be able to resupply or reconstruct Ukraine's army and, and uh, its military infrastructure, this sort of thing. So I think for the army, potentially that, you know, that kind of list of targets that they have hit in order it to sort of destroy Ukraine's military potential and prevent it from from restocking it easily or from rebuilding it easily, I mean, it's very difficult to verify how much of that is true, how much they actually have achieved that. But for them, that is, I think, a key goal. That if they can, uh, if they perceive it to have been achieved, then they see that they're kind of this enemy, this anti-Russia that was that's sitting on the door on their doorstep has been sort of. Know, that its teeth have been have blunted in some way. So maybe that's maybe that's the logic that they would go over down.
0: I, I worry about the flip side of it, to be honest, that the the Ukrainian military has revealed itself to be extremely able. The West has revealed itself to be more than capable of keeping the Ukrainians resupplied and resupplied with quite sophisticated weapons that are now battle tested in uh significant confrontations with the Russian army and have done exceedingly well over a relatively protracted period of time and I uh, I wonder if uh the message to the Russian army is that it has been you know there's a a, a little bit of an emperor has no clothes quality that this You know, greatly, greatly feared military, uh, force that has the largest defense commitments of any domestic force in the world, just because of the size of Russia has now revealed, been revealed to be dramatically less capable in ground combat than anybody imagined. And if I were senior Russian military, ending the conflict with that as the message would be pretty terrifying like i would be worried that the moldovans uh think this is a great time to take back transnistria that the georgians will are watching very carefully with respect to abkhazia you know that like you're you're you know the 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 degree to which the military the russian military has been shown to be very defeatable by forces that we all assumed couldn't has got to be scary to to senior Russian military contemplating a settlement on the basis of a fall back to Donbass?
2: Yes if if um, I mean if you mean from a from an international perspective I mean in terms of as in uh, if you mean from from a perspective how they're viewed internationally um and and what messages sends on a, on a global level if we're talking about georgia and Moldova and other countries i think the, the ruthlessness that has been shown in kharkiv and Mariupol and places like that i think uh acts as a you know opportunity <laughs> messaging that has been has a deterrent is a deterrent it acts as a deterrent but um <sighs> And maybe that's part of the of the goal of it, with eighty percent of Mariupol's infrastructure destroyed and and uh, and so many lives lost. But you know, if, if this is presented domestically to the kind of domestic military as a project that has aimed to um, as a mission to take Donetsk Oblast and Luhansk Oblast, those the wider administrative borders of of those regions, then the for example in the, in the on Friday the, one of the generals were saying that 93% of this Luhansk territory has now, you know, has now um, fallen under control of of the uh, Luhansk forces who were sort of pushing the outer boundaries of their state. Um, And 272 settlements have been sort of been passed under their control. Those are things that they can, you know, say that this was the most intense front and, you know, this is what we're aiming for all along and um, how, you know, this is our this is our victory. You know, we wanted to secure this wider Donbass region. This is these are the elements that we have taken from it. So if it's a if it's a domestic message, that one spinning it like that could could you know they, they have expanded that territory. They're on the ground. The facts on the ground do show that um, some of that some of those areas have been taken. In- internationally, you know, there's you know the narrative war there appears firmly to have been lost. Yeah,
0: we're going to leave it there, uh, Polina Ivanova. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you. Thanks for your time.
0: The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode was me because we did it kind of on the spur of the moment. So I just recorded it myself. Hey, though, you need to do your part to support the Lawfare Podcast. That means... Becoming a material supporter of Lawfare, you should also check out our many other podcast offerings, our increasingly diverse podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, The Aftermath. Check them all out. They're there for you. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia
2: Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.